Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 12. I'll read beginning in verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was, there, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the, to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together for worship. We thank you for the blessedness of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. What a glorious and a wondrous Savior. We thank you that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you for his life of perfect obedience to that divine law. Thank you for his death on Calvary's cross as our substitute and sacrifice, that, uh, that atonement for sin. Thank you for the resurrection that third day and the ascension on high. We give praise to you for his current session now. We look forward to his return again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We pray that your spirit would be with us now, that you would guide our thoughts as we consider this passage of Holy Scripture, as we see the triumph of the Lamb, as we see the power and the victory of our Lord Jesus. May this be a great encouragement to each of your, each of your people, for certainly we live in chaotic times. We live in a world filled with sin and rebellion and transgression. We have our own remaining corruption to contend with, and we are ever mindful of that devil who roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. God, steady us, stabilize 
wise us, grant us grace to be still and to know that you are God, to know that you will be exalted among the nations and in the earth. And as well for any and all who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, we pray that they would hear the good news of salvation by Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord. May they learn, may they understand that there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. That if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful gospel this is and what a blessed uh, privilege it is to share this with one another tonight. Forgive us now for all of our sins, and we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as we look here at Revelation chapter 12, we see that there is a lot going on. We'll not deal with all of the particular details, but what we have essentially in chapter 12 is a bit of a behind-the-scenes look at what went on with reference to Christ's incarnation and ascension. In other words, we see that he came to his own and his own received him not. We see the mistreatment, the maltreatment he re received at the hands of his own countrymen. John announces in his prologue that very thing. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. I mentioned Isaiah 53 this morning. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He says when he's asked to, uh, about discipleship, he says the foxes have their holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But it's not just the sort of animus that he received from his fellow man, but there were things going on behind the scenes. And as I said, Revelation chapter 12 illustrates that or underscores that or gives us that in terms of a vision. As well, Revelation 12 is intimately connected to Revelation 13. When you get to Revelation 13, you see the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. Well, these are, I suspect, a political power and a religious power. They do not operate autonomously. Rather, the devil is behind them. This wicked one, this dragon, he is the one that activates them. He is the one that empowers them and enables them, or rather wants to enable them so that they can rise up against Christ and against his people. So I want to look at this particular chapter of Scripture under three considerations. First, the incarnation of the Son in verses 1 to 6. Secondly, the defeat of the dragon in verses 7 to 12, and then thirdly, the persecution of the woman in verses 13 to 17. One of the things that we are struck by in this particular chapter is the reality that even though Christ lived, died, and was raised again, even though he's stationed presently at the right hand of God Most High, even though these things are true, that does not mean that in this present evil age there'll be no tribulation. There will be hardship, there will be difficulty, there will be that, that rage against the church waged by the devil. And he wages it through lawless governments, he wages it through lawless men, he wages it through a whole host of things. Similar to what the apostle says in Ephesians chapter 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We wrestle against those unseen forces that work through in and by those things that we see in this present evil age. So let's look first at the incarnation of the Son. I want to identify the various persons that are mentioned in verses 1 to 6. We have first the woman in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, the dragon in verses 3 and 4. Thirdly, the child in verse 5. Uh, and then his church actually in verse 6. So note first the woman in verses 1 and 2. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. Perhaps put your finger there and look back to Revelation chapter 1, just so you can kind of understand the nature of the book of Revelation. 
It's not straightforward narrative. There's a lot of vision, there's a lot of metaphor, there's a lot of allusion, there's a lot of Old Testament quotation. In fact, one has commented that the, the book of Revelation is the most Old Testament-ish book in the entirety of the New Testament. That doesn't mean it contains the most direct quotations, but there are several allusions. There's a lot of background in terms of what John is doing uh, its taproots are in the Old Testament. So notice in Revelation 1 at verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent, and notice the next language, and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near." But that's important. He sent and signified it. He signifies it through vision. He signifies it through this manifestation by God to John the Apostle. He's functioning here as a prophet. He's functioning here as a seer. He is functioning here as one who receives the mysteries of God and writes them down to encourage the people of God. And I would submit that the book of Revelation is most encouraging. A lot of times we treat it as if it's very discouraging. It's full of gloom and doom. It's full of foreboding things. It's full of things that, that give us a bit of cause and, and concern concerning our future. The emphasis throughout in the book of Revelation is on the crown rights of our Lord Jesus Christ and of his power, majesty, and glory. In fact, what we see in uh, chapters like this is his triumph. It is his victory. So back to the text in verses 1 and 2. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now the most obvious explanation for this is that this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. I would suggest that that's not the only referent here. It certainly includes Mary, the mother of Jesus, but I think more expansively what we see is that the old covenant community is in view. Last week, we considered the first promise of God's gospel in Genesis chapter 3, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And having given that promise to the old covenant community, there was an expectation within them that Messiah would come, that the Lord's Christ would come, that Jesus would come. He would be born of a woman and he would ultimately render a decisive victory against the devil himself. So Mary is included to be sure, but it's the old covenant people of God. The woman of Revelation 12 is the true Israel of God. And the language is suggestive of Genesis chapter 37 and a dream that Joseph had in terms of prestige and in terms of personages. The reference in verses 6 and 13 indicates that the woman is the church, the people of God. So when the devil does not defeat the Lord Jesus, he turns his attention and his efforts or he redoubles them against the people of God. And that's what you see in verses 6 and 13. So the, uh, what we see in terms of the woman, uh, David S. Clark says the 12 stars may have reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. The true Israel, the Zion of God, gives us the incarnate Christ. Out of the bosom of the church comes Jesus Christ into the world as the promised Messiah who was to be the seed of the woman. 
So we're dealing with the old covenant people of God who bring to us, because of God's promise in Genesis 3.15, the Messiah. That brings us to consider the dragon in verses 3 and 4. Notice his identification in verses 3 and 4a. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on, it, diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. The great dragon is the serpent of old. Remember the cunning of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3? It is the one that God pronounces the curse upon, and then God, through the serpent, condemns the devil and makes that proto-gospel concerning the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. There would be this decisive victory. The great dragon, the serpent of old, is called the devil and Satan if you drop down to verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And notice the, the specific plan that the devil employs here. So we not only get his identification in verses 3 and 4, but we notice as well his particular plan in verse 4b. It's almost like he understood at least a little bit about that proto-gospel in Genesis 3.15, that it would be the seed of the woman that would render that decisive victory over the serpent himself. And so note what the devil attempts to do in history according to verse 4b. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Makes perfect sense in a diabolical way. If the promise of God is tied up in the seed of the woman, then it makes sense in terms of the wicked one to try to decimate the seed of the woman. Doesn't that seem to have a, a bit of logic about it? And then when you move through redemptive history, you see there are times when the seed of the woman is jeopardized. Genesis chapter 38, there was a man by the name of Judah, and he wanted to take a wife for his son. And he does so, and her name is Tamar. He first gives his son Ur to Tamar. But Ur was wicked in the sight of God, so God killed him. And then he gave his other son, Onan. Well, Onan followed in the heels of his brother and was wicked as well, and God killed him. And then Judah promised Tamar that, he, that she could have his other son, Shelah. Well, Shelah grew up and that was not, and he was not given to Tamar. So what does Tamar do? She lay with Judah. And it's a kind of repulsive story that you read there in Genesis 38, but in the providence of God, it moved the ball down the field. If Tamar, humanly speaking, hadn't have done that, we wouldn't have the seed of the woman pass from generation to generation. And then at about the time of 2 Kings chapter 11, there was a, a wicked woman that usurped the crown, and her name was Athaliah. And the way that she tried to secure and preserve her power was to destroy all the rightful heirs to the crown. And so she does that, or attempts to do that. But thankfully, there was a woman by the name of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat uh, spirited away Joash so that Athaliah could not kill him. Again, the seed survives, but you see the devil working very intently to try to stop the seed. As well, you have the attempt at destruction in Matthew's gospel. We call it the massacre of the innocents. Remember, Herod ordered the slaying of all male, all male sons that were two years and under. 
Why do you think he wanted to do that? Because he's moved and motivated by the power of the devil to try and eradicate the seed. You see the attempt at destruction in Matthew chapter 4 as well, when Jesus is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, and there he is tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. What's the nature of the tempter's temptation? It's to try to dethrone Christ. It is to try to mitigate his effect. It is to try to stop him in his tracks so that he is not successful in rendering that death blow against the devil. And so this one's attempt to try and destroy the seed of the woman is always frustrated. It is always met by God's grace, or rather overcome by God's grace, to the point where when Jesus has come, when he has died, when he has been raised again, he has effected that death blow over the devil himself. And intriguingly, there was this attempt and success on the part of the devil through the unbelieving Jews. Remember that scene when, when Pilate says, do you want me to release for you Barabbas or Jesus? They said, well, give us Barabbas. All things being equal, we'd rather have a revolutionary. We'd rather have a terrorist. We'd rather have a, a murdering insurrectionist. Well, well, what shall I do with Jesus? What did they say? They said, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Again, what's the power behind the scene? Little does that power behind the scene know that it is through his cross work, through the blood of the lamb, that he would indeed achieve that decisive victory over the devil himself. So whatever the devil is, he is not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He is not omnipowerful. He is not able to, to do whatever it is that he wants to do. He's thwarted and frustrated by the, the Lord God most high. Now notice, thirdly, the child in verse 5. It says in verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. So two things are referenced here by John. The incarnation of the Son and as well the ascension of the Son. That doesn't destroy the life, the ministry, the act of obedience. It simply confines or, or, or brings in this uh, brief reference to incarnation ascension all the things appropriate to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. This is the one that was prophesied in Isaiah 9 and in Micah 5, the one who came from the ancient of days in order to rule, in order to govern, in order to lead, in order to fulfill that promise of Genesis 3.15 and crush the head of the serpent. So the reference to the incarnation and ascension, I think, is well explained by G.K. Beale. He says that temporal telescoping is involved in verse 4 is suggested by verse 5. Now a snapshot of Christ's entire life, his birth, his destiny of kingship, and his incipient fulfillment of that destiny in his ascent to God's heavenly throne after his post-resurrection ministry is given in one line. So incarnation and ascension certainly involves and includes the life of obedience and the death on the cross. In fact, if you look specifically at verse 11, the decisive element in the saints' victory over the devil, in Christ's victory over the devil, is due and owing to his blood. Notice in verse 11, they overcame him by what? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. 
So life, death, resurrection, ascension on high. The devil tried to thwart, the devil tried to frustrate, the devil tried to stop, but God Most High is sovereign. God Most High is glorious. God Most High overcame the Judah and Tamar situation. God Most High overcame the, the Athaliah and Joash situation. God Most High overcame. There's another place in the, in the religious reformers, Ezra and Nehemiah, where the children of Israel were taking on pagan wives. And Ezra tells them to divorce them, to put them away. Why is that? because they didn't want to jeopardize the seed of the woman. They didn't want to jeopardize the, the reality of a coming Messiah that would destroy the serpent. And then in Matthew and all throughout the scripture, we see there was this attempt, but God overruled it and he brought glory to, him, to himself. And then finally, notice his church in verse six. Then the woman fled. Again, that's the woman of verses one and two and the woman of verse 13. Verse 6 tells us, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. I think it simply means that after the ascension of Jesus Christ, as I've already intimated, it doesn't mean that now we just live unaffected. Now everything is just okay in this world. Well, Jesus has ascended on high. He led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. He's ruling and reigning over all things with that rod of iron, which, by the way, is a, an allusion to Psalm 2. Therefore, the children of the king will, will never be molested, will never be affected, will never have problems. But you see, the king himself said that in this world you will have tribulation. The emphasis is on be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So we're in this state of overcomeness by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're not yet fully in that eternal state of consummated glory. There's going to be tension. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be the reality of 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you're not a believer here tonight, when I say to you, you want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, look to him in faith. It is for the forgiveness of sins. It is for the salvation wrought by God. Notice what I'll not say to you. Come to Jesus and you'll never have a problem again. Come to Jesus and there'll be no more remaining corruption. There'll be no more malicious world. There'll be no more roaming lion or devil roaming about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. No, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for Jesus has overcome the world. The fact of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ does not argue against the presence of trouble and trial and difficulty in this present evil age. Again, go back to the old covenant. They had Yahweh of Israel as their king. They had a divine monarch. They had a, a, a God who was for them that would fight their battles for them. But there were times that he fought their battles in such a way that they lost. I mentioned the capture of the Ark of the Covenant this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Well, why does God do that? If he's the powerful, all-glorious God of heaven and earth, why does he let Israel fail? Because Israel needed to learn some lessons. They needed to learn the lesson that the, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't a lucky charm. It wasn't a holy horseshoe. It wasn't a four-leaf clover that you just trot out and thus render victory over all your enemies. No, God would rather have them lose the Ark of the Covenant so they understand where their help lies. 
So God Most High, being absolutely sovereign, in control of all things, glorious, powerful, and majestic, Christ at his right hand, reigning the nations with a rule of iron, a rod of iron, does not mitigate the trials, the afflictions, the hardships, and the sufferings that the people of God undergo. Brethren, I think that you need to get this. You need to understand this. In fact, in the book of Revelation, you see something very similar. It's kind of like that motif in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 starts off with a question. Why do the nations rage and, and the people's plot a vain things? They cry out to, uh, against Yahweh and against his Christ. They essentially said, we don't want him to rule over us. The kings of the earth, they, they take their stand together. The rulers all, all take counsel together. They, they shake their fist at God Most High. That's the tumult and the chaos and the problems and the mutiny in this present evil age. And then the scene shifts to that holy hill of Zion, where God the Father stations his son as the king on that holy hill of Zion. Well, the book of Revelation goes in that same trajectory. Revelation chapters 2 and 3. What do you see there? You see letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And what happens when those churches are written to? I know everything is great. I know everything is always wonderful. I know that you've got cars in the driveway. You've got chickens in your pots. You've got well-behaved children. You've got good high-paying jobs. You've got perfect sort of acceptance in this present evil age. No, the book, uh, uh, the, 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 the churches in Asia Minor, they're suffering. There's hardship, there's woe, there's difficulty, there's trial, there's affliction. But then the scene shifts in four and five to God most high, ruling and reigning over all things. See, brethren, the take home lesson of the Bible is that when you come to Jesus, you are justified freely by his grace. When you come to Jesus, you receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You're justified, you're sanctified, you'll be glorified. But that does not remove you from the present travail that is associated with life in a godless world. It's just not the case. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Remember that scene in Acts chapter 5 when they couldn't silence the apostles for preaching the gospel. So they whipped them and they beat them. And then we see that scene where the apostles uh, leave from there and they're rejoicing. Why? Because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This idea that when we come to Jesus, all our cares will be gone, all our cares will be vanquished, all our problems will disappear is simply unbiblical. In terms of our relationship with God, it's perfectly right. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is most blessed, and the world, the flesh, and the devil can never strip that away from us. But the world, the flesh, and the devil are always going to mount an opposition against us to try to get at us, to try to persecute and oppress us. So don't interpret things in the way of, I just can't believe these things are happening. Well, you better believe it because it's always happened to the people of God in this present evil age. But we have the good news of Christ's triumph even in the midst of that. That brings us then secondly to the defeat of the dragon in verses 7 to 12. Verses 7 to 12 explain the dragon's ejection from heaven and his subsequent rage directed toward the church. In this section, John provides a theological explanation for the casting out of Satan from heaven, which is associated with the series of events concerning Christ's ministry, death, and resurrection reported in chapter 12 at verses 5 and 6. So as I said, it's a behind the scenes. 
Okay, we know what happened on the cross when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When that veil was rent from top to bottom, signifying acceptance by God of sinners unto himself through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, well what was happening in heaven? What was going on behind the scenes? What was happening in terms of the powers and the principality, uh, uh, principalities in those high places? Well, notice first the victory of Christ in verses 7 to 11. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found uh, for them in heaven any longer. So basically, the chapter here is heavily charged with prophetic imagery. You can go back to the book of Daniel to see references there to Michael. You go back to the book of Daniel to see that he's this angelic being that is, that is engaging in victory on behalf of God Most High. And notice the specifics. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So at the death of our Lord Jesus, at the, 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 the time when he offered up that sacrifice to God Most High, there was a decisive blow rendered upon the serpent. I mentioned those texts last week when we looked at Genesis chapter 3. You see it in John 12. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, the Father delivers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Colossians 2, 15, Christ triumphs over the principalities and powers at the cross. 1 John chapter 3, one of the purposes for which the Lord Jesus came into the world was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews chapter 2, the very same emphasis. And so you see that behind the scenes, what is happening? We see the cross, we see what Jesus renders, we see that he satisfies divine justice, but what's happening in those heavenly places? Well, this is a behind the scenes snapshot. The war in heaven is the counterpart of the earthly events in verses 1 to 6. The devil tries to stop the seed, but he doesn't. The seed comes. He's born. He does what the seed was intended to do. And in that, he crushes the head of the serpent. The devil and his angels could not prevail against the lamb. It is very obvious. It is very specific there. And the devil and his angels, notice in verse 9, were cast out of heaven. Verse 9, so the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, this is a reference not to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, but to the new creation account inaugurated by our Lord Jesus Christ. At his death, the devil is cast out. At his death, the devil is bound. At his death, the devil is rendered ineffective. I mean, he's still there roaming about like a roaring lion, but as Luther said, he's like a dog on a leash. He can go so far and no further. He can go so far and no further, but he's cast out. David S. Clark again says, when Christ arose from the dead and ascended to the throne of God, it was eviction notice served on Satan. Verse five gave us the scene of ascension and the following verses give us the victory and prelude of coming victories consequent upon that ascension. It is the aftermath of Christ's victory from the time of his ascension with which we are dealing here. Notice in light of this, there's a shout. <laughs> Why do we sing hymns and psalms and praises to God Most High? To glorify Him for what He's accomplished. Why do we sing the, the various things that we sing? 
Is it just because we all have splendid singing voices and we really are an encouragement to one another? I mean, there is an encouragement to one another aspect. There's a proclamation aspect when we, when we uh, uh, speak and, and sing the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But it is to bring glory and praise and honor to God. Notice that shout of victory in verse 10. The devil is cast out. So verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. You'll notice that all of the references here, they're not to the second advent of Christ. It isn't to the second coming of Christ when he comes in overwhelming power, when he comes with the glory of his Father and all of his holy angels taking vengeance on them that know not God and on them that do not obey the gospel. This is associated with the first advent. It's associated with the first coming. It's associated with his life, his death, and his resurrection. And you see that specifically there in verse 11, the vital component by which the devil has been cast out. The vital component by which the devil has been defanged. Verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. In other words, these ones understand the glory of Jesus Christ in his first coming. They understand the decisive blow that's been dealt to the devil in fulfillment of and in application of Genesis chapter 3. The skull-crushing seed of the woman has rendered decisive victory over the serpent, over the devil, over that dragon of old. And then notice the, the announcement of warning. Again, this seems so perplexing to us because I think we have this mindset that I'm a Christian now. Everything should be great. And it is great. I'm not suggesting it's not. There's nothing greater than being able to pillow your head tonight, having been justified by faith. There's nothing greater than to know the joy of the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing greater than to know the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be cleansed in his blood, clothed in his righteousness, fit and accepted by the Father. There's nothing better than that. But when it comes to life in this present evil age, we, we expect more. We're, we're children of the king. There's an incipient, amount, uh, an incipient amount of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel in all of us. Well, well if I'm a Christian and, and God is for me, as the Bible says, then, then why all these bad things? Why all these tough things? Why all these difficulties? Why is it that my life at times looks so different than the godless who seem to be flourishing and thriving? You're not the first one to make that connection. Asaph in Psalm 73 says, God is good to Israel, to such as fear him. And then he speaks not only of God's goodness, but of his own sort of declension. He says, but as for me, my foot nearly slipped. Well, what happened, Asaph? He says, well, I, I looked around in the world and I, I saw the, the righteous suffer. I saw the righteous just having the, the, the toughest of goes at it. And then I saw the wicked flourish. I, I saw their new cars. I'm paraphrasing Asaph here. I, I saw their big mansions. I saw their summer homes. I, I saw their, their clothing. I saw their, their bank accounts. I, I saw how they just seemed to thrive and, and to flourish and, and to abound. He says, I, I couldn't make heads or tails of it until I went into the sanctuary. 
It was when he, as it were, put on the lenses of Scripture and interpreted things properly that everything was in its right perspective. He says, thou dost set them in slippery places. In other words, there's going to be a reckoning. The godless are going to be judged. They're going to be cast off by our Lord into everlasting punishment. The righteous, who perhaps have suffered in this present evil age, are going to go to glory. They're going to go to Emmanuel's land. So when we ask the question, well, why is it designed this way? Well, remember, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be what? To be conformed to the image of his son. How did the son learn obedience according to Hebrews chapter 5? He learned obedience not by reading the recent Christian author's bestseller on how to, you know, imbibe uh, uh, obedience. It was through suffering. And so if the people of God who follow the Lamb of God, who are justified freely by His grace, are going to be conformed evermore to the Son of God, expect there's going to be some trials. Expect there's going to be some oppression. Expect there's going to be some persecution. There's going to be distress. Never forget the language of our Lord. In this world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise from the Master. But again, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So on the heels of this decisive victory on earth, verses 1 to 6, in heaven, verses 7 to 11, now note the warning in verse 12. Therefore, o, uh, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Doesn't that make sense? The devil's been cast out. So what's the accurate response from the heavens? Rejoice! But when the devil is cast out, guess where he turns his energy? Guess where he turns his attention? Guess where he turns his animosity? Here comes the warning in verse 12b. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ has fixed our record with a holy God. But it certainly hasn't helped us with an unholy world and a devil that despises both Christ and his people. And that brings us finally to the persecution of his people, the woman, in verses 13 to 17. Notice the outrage of the dragon. This passage, and I'll summarize it when we get to application. We don't have much longer here, so you know you can give yourself a pinch and wake up and hopefully receive the rest of this because I think it's very encouraging. But with reference to the, to the devil, ha have you noticed the theme here? He keeps losing, doesn't he? He loses, and he loses, and he loses, and he loses. The triumph of Christ spells the defeat of the devil in foreheads. The triumph of Jesus spells the defeat of the devil in four particulars. And again, I'll summarize that in just a few moments. But notice the outrage of the dragon in verse 13. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant people of God. That true Israel of God that brought forth Messiah, that now worships and serves and glorifies Messiah. What does the devil do? He turns his outrage against them. That's the specifics. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The troubles and the trials in your life do not argue for the absence of God. Conversely, they argue for the presence of God. David, prior to his being anointed by, by Samuel for the kingly office, 
had a pretty uneventful life other than a few tigers and bears. But once he becomes anointed king of Israel, the fun begins. He's hunted like a dog by Saul. He's hunted like a dog by the Philistines. He's got both internal and external threat. Everybody wants a piece of David and not in the right sense. They want to kill him. They want to decimate him. They want to destroy him. But I thought he was the anointed king of Israel. He is. What about the Lord Jesus Christ? He passes through the waters of baptism. He hears the word of approval from his father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then immediately on the heels of that, he's led by the spirit into the wilderness to be what? Tempted by the devil. There's a pattern here, brethren. The cross always precedes the crown. This was the fault of the sons of Zebedee. They come and they jockey for position. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, grant that we may sit on your right and sit on your left. He says, you don't know what you're asking. I've got a baptism to undergo and I've got a cup to drink that you know nothing of. Now, incidentally, they would know later in terms of their own deaths at the hands of the godless. But the devil is outraged. He turns his attention against the church. And again, we see that. Look just for one instance at Ephesians. Look at the book of Ephesians, a, a book we've been going through in our evening services. Notice in Ephesians chapter 1, specifically at verses 19 to 23. Paul wants the saints in Ephesus to know something of the power of God. And he illustrates that power of God in the resurrection and ascension and current session of our Lord Jesus. So in 119, he says, What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in the, this age, but in, also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, you couldn't make it more clear and obvious where Christ is. Could make it more clear and obvious what Christ does. He's the head of the body. And as the head of the body, what does he do? He rules her and governs her. He protects her and he defends her. But in that protection and defense, it doesn't mean the absolute elimination of his enemies. Turn over to Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6 at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in, heavenly in the heavenly places. So you see, there's this motif that is rampant throughout Scripture. The people of God are not immune to suffering. The people of God are not immune to cancer. The people of God are not immune to government oppression. The people of God are not immune to, to persecution. It's just not the case. And you see that the devil leads that charge here, according to verse 13. But then notice this reference to wings of an eagle in verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. I think this is a reference to Israel in the Old, uh, in the Old Testament in the wilderness. Remember when God liberates uh, Israel out of bondage in Egypt? And he brings them to the wilderness. They interpreted that as a bad thing. They, in fact, longed to be back in Egypt eating the garlic and the leeks and the melons that they had. They wanted three hots and a cot. They didn't like this whole wilderness scene. That didn't impress them. But see, God's interpretation of Deuteronomy 1, 29 to 31, is that God carried Israel in the wilderness the way that a father carries his son. 
It was a time of protection. It was a time of blessing. It was a time of provision, whether they interpreted it that way or not. And I think that's the referent here in verse 14. God cares for his persecuted church. God cares for his oppressed people. God defends them. God protects them. Doesn't eliminate all of the hardship and woe because the hardship and woe is used by God for formative things in our lives. But with reference to this, you see the blessing. When Israel gathered at Mount Sinai, the Lord spoke of his care for them in this manner. Exodus 19.4, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Or in Deuteronomy 32.10-12, prior to entry into the promised land, there on the plains of Moab, as he's summarizing, as he's finalizing, as he's declaring the greatness of God in the provision and kindness to his people, it says... He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign god with him. Deuteronomy 32, 10 to 12. I think that's what's going on here in verse 14. This backdrop of God's provision for the children of Israel in that wilderness setting. And then finally, notice the attack of the serpent. He just keeps trying. I mean, you have to give him an A for effort. F for, uh, F for results, but an A for effort. Notice, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. I think the image of the flood, this is Beal, is proceeding from the serpent's mouth, pro portrays his attempt to destroy the church by deception and false teaching. And uh, Greg says this is a general reference to the devil's campaigns against the church. So he tries to do this. He tries to affect her. And then he fails again in that first century context, just on the heels of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, but then notice, verse 17 confirms what we face in our own generation. He doesn't stop. Again, A for effort, just an F for effect. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, the church in subsequent ages, the people of God throughout history. The people of God and the persecutions under the Roman Empire, the people of God and the persecutions of the various false religions, the people of God at the time of the Roman Catholic, you know, persecution at the Reformation. We, we, we see the, the rage of the devil. And then notice how the people of God are described in a wonderful summary statement there at the end of verse 17, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So that's Revelation 12. That's a behind-the-scenes look at what's going on in terms of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. This is as well the, the power behind the beasts in Revelation chapter 13, which is countermanded or counteracted by the Lamb and his fair army in Revelation chapter 14. So you see, there is this attempt on the part of the devil to destroy the people of God, but he is always bested by our wondrous Lord Jesus. So in conclusion, we have the triumph of the Lamb all throughout this chapter. Again, that's what Revelation is about. If you're like, well, I don't know much about Revelation, just keep reading it. There's a blessing pronounced on those who hear the words of this prophecy. You're not going to learn it by not reading it. You're not going to learn it by avoiding it. 
You're not going to learn it by saying, well, you know, I've heard this and I've heard that. Just read the book. Just read it again and again and again and again and again. If you want a helpful hint or pointer, there's good helps and pointers out there for, for, for instruction and, and, and guidance in the reading of the book of Revelation. But it's all about Christ's victory. It's all about Christ's triumph. It's all about Christ's crown. As I mentioned, secondly, the utter defeat of the devil. The devil fails in his attempt to destroy the child, verses 1 to 5. The devil fails in heaven, verses 7 to 12. The devil fails with the woman, the church, in verses 13 to 16. And the devil fails with the rest of the woman's seed in verse 17. I mean, this chapter alone should invite reader, a readership. This chapter alone should encourage you. Well, I, I don't know about that devil. Well, read Revelation chapter 12. You'll see he's a miserable failure. Again, A for effort, but a miserable failure in terms of execution. He doesn't do what he wants to do. He couldn't kill Jesus, verses 1 to 5. He couldn't remain in heaven, verses 7 to 12. He couldn't stop the woman in its incipient phase. And then he can't stop the church in succeeding ages. Why? Because Jesus Christ has promised to build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As Davis summarizes, he says, the good news of Satan's abject failure. Revelation 12 is the application of Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent. You need to see that and be encouraged by it. Yes, the devil goes about like a, roaming lion, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But remember Luther. Please don't forget this. He's tethered. He can go so far and no further. And that is an encouragement. He is not able to do the things that I think at times we give him credit for. The apostle says, greater is he that is in you than, than he that is in the world. This idea that the devil made me do it ought never to be uttered by a Christian. Never to be uttered by a Christian. The devil doesn't make you do anything. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Thirdly, we see here the persecution of the church. Again, Beal. Christians can be assured that the serpent begins to battle against their bodies only after he has lost the battle over their souls. Notice that he turns his attention and his aggression again. He, he wants to eradicate them. He wants to, he wants to crush them. He wants to stop them. This expresses one of the major themes of the book. The suffering of Christians is a sign, not of Satan's victory, but of the saints' victory over Satan because of their belief in the triumph of the cross with which their suffering identifies them. I would suggest that if you're having a miserable go at it, that may not necessarily be indicative that God is absent from you. It may actually be proof positive that God is with you. In fact, turn to Hebrews chapter 12, where the apostle quotes the book of Proverbs, and he applies it to new covenant Christians. Notice in 12.3, uh, 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 12, yeah, 12, 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. In fact, the fact that he scourges, the fact that he chastens, the fact that there's discipline argues for his presence. 
In the same book of Revelation, turn back to Revelation chapter 3. The church in Laodicea, which arguably was the worst of the seven churches in Asia Minor. Notice what Jesus says to them. Revelation chapter 3, specifically at verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with salve, that you may see. Notice verse 19, and again, arguably, Laodicea is the worst of the churches. Uh, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So this idea that problems in the Christian life argues for the absence of God is unbiblical. Problems in the Christian life are perfectly consistent with the presence of God in the Christian life. And that's another emphasis that we find here in Revelation chapter 12. And then the final thing that I want to underscore is the way of salvation. Now, verse 17 describes the church. And in verse 17b, it says, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, why do they do that? Are they a superior race of God-fearing folk? Are they the, the righteous that just come out of the womb and everything they do is on par? Is that the ones that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus? They only do this because of verse 11. They only do this because they're justified freely by God's grace through the blood of the Lamb. Verse 11, they overcame him by what? Not their obedience, not their faithfulness, not their goodness, not their works. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. The way of salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. His life, his death, his resurrection. Faith is the empty hand that receives the gift given by God most high. It is the instrument by which we appropriate every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So believe on him. That is fortification. That is strength. That is protection from this world, from the devil himself, and even from your own remaining corruption. To be able to invoke the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ is the most blessed thing any man, woman, boy, or girl possesses ever. Having faith in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage in Revelation 12. Obviously highly charged and symbolic and old covenant-ish. But we thank you that it does depict for us the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior and the utter defeat, the decimation of the devil. We thank you that Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled. We thank you that we live in light of that. And may you encourage each and every one of us, build us up in our most holy faith. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We'll close with a brief time of meditation.